0: Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly QA we do live exclusively for our MAPT members. And this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. All right. So, first one here, I have 280 clinical hours and because of COVID, I have not gotten clinical hours for a whole year. I can probably get about 100-200 in the next months would medical schools frown on this? All right. And COVID is the the topic of the day every week in Ask the Dean it's awesome right scott a lot of these students that are asking this question don't have any clinical hours they were going to cram it all in at the end and then COVID screwed them this student 280 already still potentially planning on fitting more in so i like it sounds good to me oh you're muted scott i don't hear you
1: sorry um so the question being um what would medical school would medical schools frown on this absolutely not i mean i, I think they would be receptive and uh, will understand completely about the uh, um about the you know lack of clinical hours for a year and so i wouldn't i wouldn't worry about it
0: it's it's funny right i i remember being a pre-med student and being scared of this whole process and but it's just i i wonder that fear that imposter syndrome insecurities mm-hmm. that students have now it's like i don't have anything and like neither does anyone else
1: yeah right
0: what what do you think's been going on this whole past year yeah So that's it's funny but uh, i get it it's funny all right next next question here i graduated undergrad in 2013 as a biology major i obtained my master's in biotechnology in 2017. what date would schools look at to determine how old my prerequisite coursework was completed
1: so prereqs can't be uh, generally speaking, prereqs cannot be master or graduate level coursework. And so they're going to look at the undergrad courses that you took prior to 2013 is where all those prereqs are going to be coming from. So, um, you know, depending on if I can presume that, you know, a lot of the general chemistry, organic physics, lower level biology classes were in 2000, probably 10, 11 uh, then that's a decade old. Yeah. Um, so now, what that leads you to do? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, I'd go ahead and apply with that, and uh, you know, see what see what happens. But I'll al- always look at the court, the uh, schools that you're most interested in, and uh, see if they indicate anything about prereqs needing to be a certain, you know, within a certain time period before you apply.
0: Yeah, I, it's funny. I just recorded an old pre-meds podcast episode right before this, and that was the question. It was a 33-year-old, did extremely well, uh, as it sounded like a pre-med major in undergrad, but ended up not getting into medical school and then taking a lot of time off. And there's this big myth that we talk about all the time that pre-reqs expire, and it's just not true mm-hmm. for most medical schools. Right, and right. I told the story of a Texas resident, actually a Texas applicant. She was a physical therapist. And hadn't taken any classes since graduating physical therapy school 20 years ago took the mcat crushed it applied to medical school got in so yeah it's uh, it is definitely possible yeah absolutely um so again uh for those of you on clubhouse we're recording ask the dean here live we'll, we'll bring in some students um on clubhouse i'm with dr scott wright former director of admissions at ut southwestern medical school And Rachel Rachel Grubbs, my co-founder of MAPT, answering questions here that we've gotten on Facebook and and YouTube right now. This next question, I worked hands-on with children who have neurological and motor disorders such as cerebral palsy to help them perform daily tasks such as eating, walking, brushing teeth, etc. The program is called Conductive Education. Is this considered clinical experience? I would think so. Yeah. Right. It's the biggest question that students have is it sounds like this isn't necessarily in a, quote unquote, clinical environment setting, right? mm-hmm. therefore it must not be clinical. But this this is clinical to me.
1: Oh, yeah, I agree completely.
0: Yeah. Awesome. That sounds like a great job. I, 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 I would love to know, right, conductive education. That's a great name. I've never heard mm-hmm. that term before. Mm-hmm. So if you're a pre-med student looking for clinical experience, there's a good search term to go conductive education insert your hometown there and and see if there's any opportunities for something similar absolutely awesome and next question here i've been working on lung trauma and infection treatment research with rabbits (laughs) i don't know why rabbits is capitalized for the last two and a half years by shadowing in nine specialists i had very meaningful plus or minus interactions with physicians and patients unfortunately I lack quote unquote clinical experience hours. What are your thoughts on the relevance of my experience and its impact on the medical admissions process?
1: So let's see here. I've been working on lung trauma and infection treatment research for rabbits, uh, shadowing. Yeah, I mean, I think that would not be considered clinical. Um, You know, it's obviously research, um, but not clinical. And so the lack of clinical experience um, is, is going to be real for, for you. Um, I definitely think that, um, you know, you've got a lot of shadowing, so that's, that's a positive thing, but I would like to see uh, patient interaction uh, with you. So, um, you know, uh, I would say, yeah, it's going to add into uh, the, the research that you've done is going to add into uh, your application and be, be, uh, be obviously clearly re- relevant, but I don't think that um, it's going to you know count toward clinical hours. And so I definitely would encourage you to get some clinical experience.
0: Scott, for yourself, former director of admissions at a medical school, why is clinical experience so important for, for a pre-med student who doesn't really understand this process? They just know they've always wanted to be a doctor. Why do I need to go get clinical experience? Why, from, from a medical school standpoint, are you looking at that?
1: Yeah, we're really looking at, I think admissions committees are really looking at uh, trying to determine a, a number of different things. One is uh, it, it requires you to get out there and, and really make an effort to uh, find clinical experiences, to involve yourself in them. Uh, etc so it's it's number one it's the effort that shows effort and that's that's meaningful to an admissions committee that you've made you know this effort to do that uh, secondly i think in terms of the strictly um, uh, clinical aspect of it they want to see that you know what you're getting into now you do get some of that with shadowing uh, where you have uh, an opportunity to watch physicians to see what they do uh, but it doesn't put you into contact directly with patients because I I think it's different standing in a, in a room and saying, Oh, I can, you know, watch this physician doing this. It's a whole nother thing to be yourself dealing with patients in whatever, uh, whatever avenue that, that exists for you. And, uh, and so I think admissions committees want to see that, you know, that medicine is not all glitz and glamor, that it's, you know, that there's a lot of, uh, monotony to it. There's a lot of bureaucracy to it. And, uh, and as, as in any healthcare career and that you get a really good sense of this is what I've done. And, and, uh, and, and I, this is what I want to continue to do in my career.
0: Yeah. It's not all hooking up in the janitor closet, like Grey's Anatomy. No. <laughs> no. Awesome. All right. Uh, another question here. I have three years of bad grades 55 units 2.67 last two years um all right so three years of bad grades 55 credits 267 last two years 53 credits 3.6 or units they say 3.6 gpa should i continue this upward trend with a post or apply to medical school and their their upward trend is 323 mm-hmm. 326 375 and a 40. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a great um, trend. This is the kind of thing that you know, if you start off kind of rocky, which a lot of students do in in uh, in um, uh, college, and especially for that freshman year. And I and I think that um, this is the kind of upper trend that we all want to see. That everybody wants to to see when you start out rocky like that and, and move forward. To the question, uh, I would say you know, a little a little bit of it depends on I. I it's a little bit difficult to to get a sense of what the overall GPA might look like, but it looks like it would probably be similar number of units in the first two three years yeah. to the first. Split that. Um, yeah, so three you know, maybe. Yeah, probably three one three two something like that. So that's still a little bit low for an overall GPA, but the trend is good. Uh, I mean, I would say optimally. You would continue that in a in a postback program uh, and and, and uh, show that this is real stuff and that you uh, uh, are committed to doing whatever you got to do to get into medical school. I wouldn't be opposed. It would certainly be acceptable uh, to apply with this with this um, profile, but always within the context of understanding that you may not get in and that you may want to uh, 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 you know you may have to reapply. So that in that. Uh, in that gap year, in that application year, you have to sort of work toward what's my reapplication going to look like. Um, and so, you know, I I, I think um, a postback program sounds uh, very reasonable to me in that in that scenario. Yeah. Yep. And
0: just remember, it's one piece of the puzzle, right? Stats are yep. one thing, but maybe Absolutely. the rest of the application, yep. it's all of that as well. Clinical yep. experience, shadowing, research, if you want to do that as well awesome and and for those of you on clubhouse we're streaming our ask the dean episode here on clubhouse as well uh we'll try to get some some people on to on the stage to ask some questions here in a minute we're going through on um, facebook and youtube where we're streaming at mapped.tv answering questions right now there so uh raise your hand if you're in the audience on clubhouse and we'll bring you on asap next
1: question cool
0: I did a post back in clinical laboratory sciences seems to be a very common post back mm-hmm. uh, master's level post seems like not yeah. quite a quote unquote medical school specific post but still lots of hard sciences. Seventy four hours worth with a three five. Would this be good enough after a poor original GPA of a two point nine?
1: Hmm. Hmm. So my cons- so several things. Um... Good enough is a concerning phrase to me. Uh, would this be good enough? There's no guarantees. There's no right way, wrong way necessarily to to go about this. And so there's a lot of different pieces to this puzzle. So good enough. Uh, I mean, nobody... that, that The the only, yeah, the only reason, the only way you can determine if it's good enough is if you apply and get in, then you know, it was good enough.
0: And and you applied to every single medical school. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. So I I don't like the good enough idea that, that that mentality to say uh, that you're good enough uh, in that scenario. So, but, and to the point, let me, let me also address something with regard to med lab sciences or clinical laboratory sciences, um, this is what we consider to be an allied health um, sort of area. Uh, this is not strictly a purely um, scientific for the purposes of science um, course, uh, coursework. Uh, in other words, it, it's not like going into a biology program where you're getting a master's degree in biology. Yeah. So what what clinical laboratory science is doing is is teaching content, but it's also teaching skills, skills of within the context of hematology. They're testing. They're they're taking um, courses and stuff on how you do blood tests and how you do you know mechanically how you do all this stuff. And so there will be medical schools that will look at a master's program like that. Although she doesn't say master's program or he doesn't say master's program, but um, uh, so I'm, it's unclear. Uh, but I would say 3.5 is good. You could obviously go for it and see how, see how things play out for you. Uh, but it, it is possible that, that med schools, some med schools may look at that and say, well, we don't really know what a 3.5 is in clinical laboratory sciences. We don't know what that means yeah. as opposed to, knowing what it meant in undergrad to take all these undergrad classes and generate a 3.0 or 3.5 or a 4.0 so it's a little bit difficult um so, so the question being that
0: for a second scott how much luck is involved and i hate using that word but how much luck is involved for an admissions committee member to have experience from an yes. student who applied three years ago from the same yeah. program with the same degree, with the same GPA in that master's mm-hmm. program, who did well in medical school. And that puts their mind at ease that you're going right. to do well as well, hopefully.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to recognize, and this is part of the admissions process is that it's very personal. It's very personal when it gets down to the medical schools looking deeply into applicants. Lives and into who they are as a person, but it's also very personal when it comes to uh, medical school admissions committees and their own experiences. So, uh, a, a committee member that has years of experience on that committee and has dealt with a lot of uh, of applicants and remembers applicants from certain programs or certain schools, then you're absolutely right. They're going to be much more amenable to, you know, to accepting students from those programs or whatever. Uh, now I'll give you an example we we had a, a, uh, an admissions committee member at um, UT Southwestern who in her past life had been a nurse. So she'd been a nurse for a number of years before she went to medical school and uh, and so she was always this big advocate for, Nurses and um, other healthcare professionals coming into the medical school admissions process and really advocating for what they had done in their in their previous career. So I did, I, I absolutely agree with you, Ryan, that the 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 personal qualities or the luck, as you called it, uh, of, uh, of of who you get, who's on an admissions committee, what their own experiences are, both in the committee as well as previously in their life. All of that plays into this whole process of of how how things are going to work in the admissions committee relative to, you know, an application.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right. So again, for uh, Clubhouse, where we're streaming Ask the Dean here live today, if you have a question, raise your hand. I'm with Dr. Scott Wright, former director of admissions at UT Southwestern, as well as Rachel Grubbs, my co-founder at MAPT. Um, who has years and years of experience in the, the MCAT test prep world and some pre med advising as well? So, next question oh. up we have Would it be wise to ask for letters of recommendations now, as we're recording this kind of February 1st, 2020, if I'm applying next year? So, f- for next year, applying. I'm happy to
2: say it's 2021.
0: Yeah, did I say 2020? Sorry. 2021. So for next year. I was trying to do the four next year math in my head as well at the same time. So um, I'm assuming they're saying applying in 2022 to start 2023. So to apply for 2023. Yeah. Uh, if I'm considering applying this cycle, but haven't decided what's an appropriate date to decide about. Okay. So they're on, on the two questions. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think obviously if you're applying potentially applying this cycle go ahead and ask now yes uh, I, i'm a firm believer in setting expectations and and potentially tell your letter writer i'm not completely sure maybe that i'm applying this cycle but but there's a good chance and i just want to make sure i'm ready and i'd love a letter of recommendation and please don't kill me if i come back and ask for it to be updated next year
1: yeah yeah agree completely yeah
0: Awesome, easy one. Let's rock and roll and again. If you're on Clubhouse, you want to come ask a question. Got some pre med experts here. You can come join us. We're recording for Ask the Dean, which is a podcast that the Mapped team does. Uh, it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, it's a YouTube uh, series as well, video series as well. Mapped TV. So. Let's keep rocking and rolling here. Can being a caregiver to an ill family member be considered clinical experience? And if so, who will you put as an activity contact? I love this one because the AMC has come out and said specifically being a caregiver is considered clinical experience. Yeah. yeah. Put an asterisk on that, Scott, because we we have to always asterisk this one because a lot of students will only have being a caregiver for an ill family member as clinical experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. So I agree with you completely. I agree with the WMC This is a clinical experience. Um, I don't think you can put, you know, Rachel's talked before about how, you know, you could spend 24 hours a day doing uh, caregiving for your, you know, ill family member, but you can't count 24 hours a day for seven months or whatever as the number of contact hours you have, for that activity. So you have to be sort of um, conservative on that and really think about how many hours did I spend actually doing clinical care as opposed to making them dinner or doing this or that or the other thing. So you have to, I would say, err on the side of conservatism with that, uh, with the hour count on that clinical activity. Um, Now, if that's the only clinical experience you have, I think that's problematic. Uh, Because um, you're not, you know, when you're dealing with an ill family member, they're going to treat you differently than somebody that you don't know would treat you uh, in a clinical setting. And in a clinical setting, you're going to be in, uh, you know, in in this particular case with an ill family member, you're at home or, you know, potentially you're in, you know, perhaps another location, but most likely either your home or their home. And uh, and it's a different, it's a comfortable environment. You, you know, you you kind of have a lot of leeway in terms of what you're doing and when you're doing it and stuff. Clinical environment, uh, such as a hospital or a clinic or a hospice situation or even a nursing home, very different. And uh, so I would say you cannot depend on caring for an ill family member as your only experience. That that will not work yeah
0: the the line that i always like to give is taking care of your grandma gertrude is is going to be different than taking care of someone else's grandma gertrude absolutely
1: absolutely Uh, all right
0: all right let's see and again if you're listening on clubhouse raise your hand we'll bring you up to the stage and you can get an answer from myself or dr scott wright former director of admissions at ut southwestern or rachel grubbs mcat expert (laughs) Jour, <laughs> or whatever that word is it's not too big of a fancy word too much of a fancy word um victor here asks i got my undergraduate degree abroad i'm a u.s citizen and i have a master's degree in public policy from cal state long beach i haven't taken any science classes at all please what are your thoughts so <clears throat> this is one that I, I always um i always cringe uh, unfortunately for for students who have been privileged enough to go overseas to, to get a degree, to go explore other cultures and other languages potentially. And then they want to go to medical school here in the States. And I'm just like, Oh, that stinks. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause it's hard. Right. T-
2: talk yeah. about that process.
1: Yeah, it really is. And some of this is going to depend a little bit on the medical school, the individual medical schools, but you know, in this case, uh, obviously this person's going to have to pick up all their science courses. Uh, all the prerequisites, in in addition to others. Now, I know that within the state of uh, within the state of Texas, they're going to want to see 90 credit hours of uh, of uh, undergraduate coursework in the U.S. and uh, and and most of that's going to be sciences. So, you, you're not going to be able to get away with just going and taking just the bare minimum science coursework uh, to apply. Now, there will be other schools outside um around the country that will be more amenable uh to that but i think you need to be prepared for the idea that you've got more schooling than just a year and a half or so uh of science coursework and that that you would have to you know pick up more he doesn't really say victor doesn't say what his um you know how he did in those i'm assuming he did well in those in those uh uh, in the undergrad abroad as well as in the master's degree at Cal State uh, Long Beach, but it uh, doesn't really indicate that. But I, I think, you know, basically my thoughts are you're going to have to go back to school, you're going to have to do undergraduate coursework in the sciences, and you need to pull good grades, and you need to show that you can do it. And, uh, and you may have to do more than just, uh, just the, the prerequisites themselves. You may have to fulfill up to 90 hours depending on what the requirements of the individual medical schools you're looking at are.
0: Yes, yes. 90 hours, it's a big kind of cutoff, a big Mm -hmm. number to remember if if you're an international student, if you have a a different kind of upbringing educational system-wise, that 90 credit hours of U.S. credits is is Mm -hmm. a big number that most schools go by. Yep. Awesome. Next up.
1: Lauren. All right.
0: I'm All having right. trouble finding work that pays well during my gap year. I'm frustrated and wondering if you have any advice. I have a double BS in biology and biomedical sciences with five plus years of clinical experience. <sighs> Fortunately, most companies take advantage of the fact that they know that students need clinical experience. So companies like scribe companies typically don't pay very well. No. AMT doesn't pay very well. Um, mm. It's, it's mm. hard. It's
1: all yeah. Great. Yeah. I mean, that's the caveat here that I am uncomfortable with. That pays well. Yeah. I mean, you can find work, um, but it's, you know, it depends on what you mean by pays well. I mean, what pays well in California or New York city is going to be a whole <laughs> lot different than what pays well in you know rural Mississippi. So yeah. uh, there, you know, that's, that's the key, the key sort of three words in that uh, in that question that make me, you know, very uncomfortable and I can understand your frustration and I can understand, uh, you know, the, the difficulties you're having, but uh, I think that this is, uh, it's a real challenge and, and you, you, you know, unfortunately with a BS in biology and in biomedical science, five years of clinical experience, you, that's still not going to do a lot for you uh, because you're not certified in anything. You know, yeah. you're not, you don't have any skills necessarily necessarily i would say the thing that you know you might look at depending on where you're located is if you're anywhere near an academic medical center uh where you can get a a research job but even a research technician those aren't going to pay that that well so let me let me
0: add a, a second thought into this is a lot of students think that they have to have a job that's medically related and they're they're not thinking right they're thinking black and white and there's a huge gray area right. where they have a job that isn't medically related that pays well right. and then every week and weekend or or weeknight and weekends right that's when they're getting their clinical experience and getting some research in potentially shadowing whatever right right they're, they're filling in the rest of their time with with the experiences that they need to continue to get to get into medical school
1: so there's lots that's, of options yeah that's right i agree with that completely yeah you, know, you can go get a, a well paying job that's outside of the context of clinical medicine and then fill in like you said the gaps with uh volunteer work or uh, other things yeah
0: I'm excited for this next question. Again, if you're listening on Clubhouse, raise your hand come up to the stage. We'll we'll bring you on to ask a question with Dr. (laughs) Scott Wright, former Director of Admissions at UT Southwestern, Rachel. You talking about the
2: one from our friend, Sydney? Yeah. Yeah, this is a good one. one.
0: Yeah. So, am I crazy for wanting to apply this cycle with a 511 MCAT, a 367 GPA, and 400 clinical hours? Now, I'm gonna leave out the next sentence. It seems like so many people have a thousand plus clinical hours in a 515 MCAT these days.
1: Well, so first well, we'll, of all, we'll add in the next sentence in yeah. a
0: second. I just want to leave the, the sentence out for now.
1: My first question is How do you know, Sydney, that so <laughs> many people have 1,000 plus clinical hours and 515
0: because an anonymous account on Student Doctor Network said, "I have a five twenty and three hundred yeah. clinical hours, yeah. your publications."
1: I can tell you, especially in the COVID period, <laughs> there are very few people that have thousands of clinical hours. Now, the the MCAT, I, I I don't think that so many people have, you know, great MCAT scores like in the five. 20 area and stuff like that it's a bell curve if you think about it that way that there's a lot more people with 511s than there are 515s there are yeah. a lot more people with Five, 511s than 520s i'm
0: looking at the the distribution range right less than 10% of people probably have a yep. 515
1: plus <laughs> yeah checking that so so you know i think that number one you're not crazy for wanting to apply i think uh, the, f- the 511, 367 GPA, 400 clinical hours within, you know, the numbers and stuff. I think that looks pretty secure to, to, to go and apply to, to you know, to schools that you're interested. In. Now, if you're only applying to the top 20 schools in the country, um, you know, the are the, the Ivy League schools or, you know, just the, the really most competitive schools, then yeah, but depending on where you're looking to apply and stuff like that, I, I definitely think you're in good shape to apply. Yeah. Uh, and and then the second iteration I would say of this is don't listen to Reddit and student doctor network and yeah. things like that. When people say, oh, there's all these people and they're all getting in. And I, am I you know, whatever, that's just not the way things work. And I don't think that what you say there, it seems like so many people have blah, blah, blah. I, I don't think that that's accurate.
0: So on its face, right, just that 511, 367, 400 mm-hmm. clinical hours, right? Again, mm-hmm. you have to tell the mm-hmm. story and, and make sure it's all put together nicely. That right. sounds like a solid application. And Agreed. then you add in the thing that I left out that she's a URM student. And it's just like medical schools would die for a URM student with amazing stats. They die oh, yeah. for, for URM students in general who are, oh, yeah. who are strong applicants. Yeah. So And that's why I left that out to begin with because the URM part doesn't matter. That's a strong yeah. applicant, period. Yeah.
1: I agree. I agree completely. So Sydney, if you're listening, I'd say go for it.
0: Go for it. Shoot your shot.
1: Yeah, do it.
2: And Keep us posted. We want to yeah. hear about your fun success stories.
1: Absolutely.
0: Come on, mission accepted. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. Okay, let's see. Oh, we just got a weird scroll. Let me find my place.
0: For those of you All at Clubhouse, we're recording Ask the Dean with Dr. Scott Wright, former director of admissions at UT Southwestern. Rachel Grubbs, my co-founder at MAPT. Raise your hand, we'll bring you up to the stage. You can ask a question. We're answering uh, questions from YouTube and Facebook right now. What should a pre-med student know about the medical school they are applying to to make a good impression in their interview?
1: Yeah, I definitely, this is a good question. Um, I I think you wanna research the school as much as possible. Uh, Obviously on their website, uh, you want to know about their mission and their values. What 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 are the things that they value as an institution? What is their mission as an institution? Uh, may you know that that could vary. A lot of schools have very similar pieces of the of, of their mission statement or their values, but it can vary pretty widely depending on if they're a school that is state supported, for example. And as you know, we we talked last week about I think it was. Uh, UC Riverside that we were talking about last week, where, uh, was it Re- Riverside? Uh, Riverside's
0: uh, always the one I bring
1: up because it's yeah.
0: mission driven for the <laughs> right, empire in California. Right,
1: right, right. And so, you know, that's going to dictate a lot about what they're looking for in the application. Uh, I would say what what, what are the big, uh, you know, topics of, of research that they do? If, if, there's, if there are certain departments that are big. Uh, You know, at the institution, Uh, you know, some some uh, schools are really big into global medicine or public health or, you know, there's areas that they really uh, focus in on or or have a reputation for. So those types of things I think are good to know about. You're never going to know everything about. About the school and uh i think if you show it that you've made an effort to find out some of this stuff that are mission critical uh, issues then then that'll be impressive to to an interviewer yeah yes yes i mean you don't have to be an expert in the school i know the yeah. school was founded in 1849 <laughs> and blah 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 <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> i remember when they
0: broke ground here <laughs> <laughs>
2: I always like to break out one of my favorite fun facts about Ohio State, which is that it was originally just an agricultural campus. Mm-hmm. And they built it a whole two miles from downtown because they figured that was far enough away that it would always stay farmland. Oh, wow.
1: That's and of course, funny. now
2: it's just like in the middle of, of everything in yeah. person
0: <laughs> metropolitan area. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: right. funny. Here we go.
0: How would you address academic dishonesty from freshman year in the application? This incident resulted in a no pass in a one credit seminar class, no effect on GPA, from not citing a definition resulting in plagiarism. What is the best way you can show growth? Whew. Luckily it's freshman year.
1: Yeah, but- that's a good thing. Freshman oh year. If this, you know, popped up in your junior senior year, that could be a little bit different. Uh, but you know, I just say you talk about it uh and in in so it's just like everything else i talk about it's there's the what and the so what so the what is what happened you know this is what happened this is what i did you know blah blah blah. the details of the of the situation the so what is what did you learn from this experience did you learn to cite things better to be more careful in your in your citations to be more careful in quoting you know in documentation Uh, did you learn uh, about uh, the importance of of, uh, academic honesty uh, in general? You know, what are the things that you learned out of this experience? And it doesn't have to be lengthy. Uh, Most of these application services, the room they give you to explain an academic dishonesty type uh, thing, uh, you don't have a whole lot of space. And so you kind of, Kind of, you know, in, in, included in a nutshell, but always keeping in mind, what did what happened? What's the scenario? What's the situation? What all happened? uh, And then so what? What what was what was the meaning of this to you? What was the relevance of it to your life? What did you learn from it? And and then that's it. That's what you say. Yep,
0: I like it. Own it. Own it. I, I think. Yeah, I think you got to potentially it. at least the way that the student presented it 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 looks like it potentially could be an easy one to deflect of like oh it's just I, yeah i forgot to um cite this one thing uh and so just own it and, and talk about what you learned from it yeah i have one year left before i take the mcat i have ochem and some other courses left with a current gpa of 3.6 and the fact that i did uh i do not do well in chemistry how should I prepare for my final year of studies, and how will this affect my chances of medical school?
1: I have OChem so other courses last. So if if you didn't, so the first thing I would say about chemistry is if you're saying I do not do well in chemistry. So what that basically means is you didn't do well in general chemistry. Now what I would say is you might. It's a possibility find out that you connect with OCHEM much differently than you do with general chemistry. Students react very differently to the two. And some students who really connect with general chemistry don't with OCHEM. If they didn't connect with Jen, uh, they, they do with OCHEM. It, it's, a, it's a mixed bag there. They're very different conceptually. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you should go into it psyching yourself out that, oh, I'm not going to do well in OCHEM because I never do well in chemistry. That's my first thing to say, yep. and so work hard, and, and you've got a good uh, GPA going with a 3.6. Three that's a that's a, a good strong GPA. Don't go into it defeated from the very get go in terms of going into O-chem. Uh Prepare well, study hard, get into get into uh, study groups, uh, visit the professor in this cl- in, in his or her classroom. Uh, you know, just do do the things that you've got to do to to do well in it. But don't go into it thinking, oh, you know, this is a huge barrier to get over. You may get in there and in love general. Oh, yeah. Oh, Kim. Uh, it's it's really hard, hard to, to know. So now, having said that, how would this affect my chances of medical school? Um you know, I think if you if you don't knock the park knock the ball out of the park in Oakim, in other words, if you don't make an A, if you make a B, uh, then I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing uh, overall, and, and may not affect in any notable way your chances of med school. Now, if you do very poorly, I know that med schools do look uh, uh, at Oakim grades. Uh, I used to have admissions committee members. Uh, at UT Southwestern, that that was one of the key things they looked at. How did they do in OCHEM, and specifically, how did they do in the lab uh, of OCHEM? They would look very specifically at that lab grade for Mm OCHEM. And so, but that was just a few, you know, uh, members that had, you know, some background uh, to to that. So I would say go into OCHEM this next year or whenever you're going to take it with a positive attitude you're gonna rock, you're going to rock it, you're gonna do well at well at it and uh and just uh and go into it that way. And then I think that'd be the best attitude to have. Yeah.
2: I wanna chime in one piece on the MCAT piece of this. So Um, This isn't a very precise commentary or timeline, but you say, question asker, I have OCHEM and some other courses left. I'm going to presume that means you also have biochem left, which plays a really, really big role on the MCAT. Mm -hmm. Um, I know some schools are still requiring that you complete OCHEM 2 before you take biochem, but fewer and fewer are requiring that. And although you probably are going to need OCHEM 2 for med school because most med schools are still requiring a year of organic, Um, you may want to think about doing OCHEM 1 and then biochem um, or doing them concurrently if your schedule can handle it. It sounds like for you, that'll be a semester you have to hype yourself up for. But you want that biochem under your belt when you take the MCAT because it's huge. Definitely. Definitely. All right. We've probably got time for a couple more. Let's
3: see.
0: What are some guidelines we should follow for answering, quote, why medicine if we were first exposed to medicine much later in life? Got a book on it all about writing a personal statement. That basically is the the template, in my mind, on how I I like to teach students how to think about that why medicine question, Mm -hmm. because that's what the personal statement is. It's it's why do you want to be a doctor? Uh, with a little bit of spice added on sometimes so yeah yeah no definitely and
1: you know and i think uh, there are many, many, many applicants who were not exposed to this idea of going to medical school early in life. You know, Some students have this thing, oh, when I was five years old, I was dissecting a frog on the sidewalk, and I decided I wanted to be a doctor, and it just goes from there. You know, other people don't come into it until much later in life when when something happens or you know they experience something or they're they're doing some soul searching or whatever. And uh, so I think it's absolutely there's no right answer here. There's no right or wrong answer here in terms of why medicine. Well, I guess there's some wrong answers, but there's not any there's not just definite right, right answers. There's a lot of right answers, in fact. And so I would say you just tell your story and uh, you you do that in a way that's going to make sense to a reader who's never met you before. And if that was later in life, then you tell it and you tell it like it happened and how, how it played out for you.
0: That yep. is it. Yeah, I think there's there's um, some, uh, oh, I can't think of the right word, um, just some fear. Fear's not the right word. Yeah, some, yeah. Some insecurities is a better word around being a late bloomer in terms of mm-hmm. medicine that, that yep. that's not right or medical schools won't like that because of all of these other students who knew from a young age yeah and that's just not true right nope. you you run your own race tell your own story
1: yeah that's right
0: awesome we got a couple people hanging out in uh the clubhouse if you want to come on to stage come on the stage raise your hand ask a question we're going to be wrapping up here in a couple minutes
2: all right. So if you're waiting for someone to raise your hand there, I'll give you this one yep. from me, too.
0: About how many different people should we get to review medical school essays, especially the personal statement?
1: Awesome question. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you have to be kind of careful with that about who you're getting to review your your essays if you're if you're looking for mom and dad to do it or your best friend or whatever sometimes that's not the greatest thing because they love you and they think everything you do is fantastic and and you're just wonderful person and who wouldn't want you in their medical school. So it has to be somebody who's critical who will be willing to be critical for you. And I would also suggest that it, it needs to be somebody who maybe has some background in the, in this in this uh field that's why there are premed advisors at your institutions uh, hopefully you have access uh i guess it's Nia to a uh to a uh, a premed advisor that has experience with with that and can can be beneficial obviously mapped uh we have services available for um uh editing and and giving suggestions and <clears throat> and stuff like that for um her essays and and secondary essays and and character, uh, I mean, um, activities, descriptions and stuff like that. So you can seek out and pay people to do it. Uh, But if you're going to find people in your life already that are doing it, you need to find people who are willing to really say the hard stuff, but who also somewhat know what they're doing. And maybe they have experience in, uh, in writing and can give you informa- you know really good help in the structure of the essay and in the, the word, the, the sentence structures and stuff like that, grammar. Uh, but also having somebody who knows, knows some, some stuff about uh, getting into medical school and stuff like that in terms of content that you really want to uh, have some people look at it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I think um, one of the things to think about there is uh, something, Rachel, that you say all the time that actually made it into my my new book is find someone who respects you more than uh, someone who is going to give you what they think is the honest truth, And right? It's just a it's one person's opinion. It may be right or wrong. Um, but but what they think is the truth, and, and not someone who will protect your feelings.
2: Yep.
1: All righty. Absolutely.
2: Any pings on Clubhouse, Ryan?
0: Nobody on Clubhouse wants to come to the stage and ask a question of of you guys. I, I think they're scared of you. That's okay. <laughs> Raise your hand. Come on. We're all. We only got a couple more minutes.
1: Yeah, That's right.
0: All right, well, we've got a
2: couple more here i just wanted to make sure that the clubhouse folks are getting representation yeah, we, too we got one
0: here we got one let's, let's bring all right one. let's do it let's bring august on hello august let me uh uh
3: good evening everybody you guys can hear me hi i can yep. hear you Yeah. hi hi ryan hey hey thank you guys so much um for this i i just have a really good question so I am uh, extremely non-traditional, and I'm going to be applying, um, I guess you could say this summer, and I'm going to be taking the MCAT in June, but my question is, um, I work full-time, and I'm kind of at this point where I'm realizing that, like, I I started studying for the MCAT um, last year, but I'm realizing as time, you know, continues to, you know, keep going, I'm realizing that I'm I'm most likely I'm going to have to probably take a month off Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can really, really, really focus because right now uh, work is kind of getting, you know, it's kind of distracting me and I don't feel as comfortable as I should when it comes to getting ready. And it's already February and, you know, June's going to be here before we know it. And I'm, so I'm just wondering, have you heard from non-traditional students, specifically those who work full time? Have you heard from them about them having to take off? Because I just feel like it, it's causing a little bit of anxiety just because, you know, i am used to working and all that but i know it's gonna i'm gonna have to do it at some point point. and so can you can you speak a little bit to that and is that normal of how i'm feeling because i just don't think that i can do both um, yeah at the same time in terms of working and going to school and volunteering and all that so mm-hmm.
2: now miss august i keep forgetting that we're just talking to each other like on the phone through the clubhouse app so i've been smiling and nodding at you this whole time I'm um, going. Yep, yep. You sound like you're on the right track. Um, so now I'll say some words. Yeah, this is normal. It's a such a bummer. It seems it seems kind of unjust to me, right? Because we have bills to pay. We have, you know, mortgages and rent, and maybe we have parents or you know grandbabies so. or babies who need us to pay those bills. And yet, the MCAT really rewards you if you can make the MCAT a full time job. Um, it is absolutely possible to prep for the MCAT as a part-time job and then still do well on it but yeah a lot of the non-traditionals that I've known over the years through MCAT prep have at least taken some chunk of time (laughs) off work if if they could if they could make it work financially and from a scheduling standpoint and then um, I mean the good news here is it's February and you're telling me oh I see June coming fast like I've had people have these panic thoughts in April or May for the June test. So like, I'm glad you're thinking ahead. And I think the next days are that, and like not to pry into your life, but just for you to personally consider is what else is going to need to happen? You know, is there, you know, childcare or remote learning that's happening at home or, um, You know, are you going to need to find a place to take practice tests because you're never going to be able to sit down for eight hours in your house without being interrupted? Like start thinking through that stuff so that when you if you do choose to take time off, that you're really making it absolutely worth that sacrifice.
3: Yeah, I can tell you that one of the things that I've realized, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm glad that I started to do this earlier, but I'm all done now with my shadowing hours, because I, I actually work at a health center, and I'm also, I'm, I'm almost done with my volunteer hours. I've been, um, I, I have about 70 hours with the National Suicide Hotline, and even that, okay. like I did that yesterday, and I realized, like, okay, this is going to be too much, you know, mm-hmm. and so I've got to kind of scale back, but the good news is that I'm pretty much done. With that, so now I can solely just focus on, uh, you know, studying. And
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, I guess you can never be fully prepared, but I'm just trying to do what I need to do because it's, it's happening fast. So, yeah, thank you. thank you so much for answering that.
2: Yeah, you're really welcome. Best of luck. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: Way thanks. Way to thanks. go, August. Yeah,
0: all right. Should we call it there?
2: I think so.
1: Yeah, sounds good.
2: Oh. Um,
0: Thanks thank you everyone on Clubhouse for joining us and August thanks for coming up on stage to ask your question. Uh, again, we are the Mapped team. Mapped is a, a new technology platform that's only been out since what August of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, for pre-med students to track and get feedback on your pre-med journey. As soon as you know you're pre-med, you should sign up for mapped over at mapped.com m a p p d Dot com and You can enter your courses, enter your activities, enter your MCAT scores, and based on what you enter into MAP, the more you enter in, the more feedback that we uh, can give you. We're <laughs> building a lot of that stuff out right now, so lots of exciting things for the future. And if you're at an undergraduate institution and you have a, an amazing pre-health advisor that you have access to, you can invite them to view your MAP data as well. So lots of, of fun toys out there for the world. And every, I think the first Monday of every month, we're going to go live on all of the channels. This is usually reserved for our mapped members only in our private mapped Facebook group. That's all I got.
1: Well, sounds good.
0: Everyone have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon.
3: Bye. Adios. Adios. Bye.
1: This is Dr. Gray again,
0: closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.